0: Did you know that TR Historical is the only online retailer of my merch? That's right. You can go over there, and I have stickers and buttons. Sooner or later, we might put some more stuff up on there. But Dave Boussier over there, owner-operator of TR Historical, has been a great friend of mine since I met him at an air show. We hit it off immediately, and we decided that we had to work together. On top of that... They have so much other stuff there as far as history swag on trhistorical.com. You're going to love it. I've ordered several shirts off of there, and there's some great stuff. I mean, if you want history swag, you got to check it out. So go over on trhistorical.com, give them some love, let Dave know I sent you. What's up, everybody? Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Tattooed Historian Show. My name is John. I am the Tattooed Historian. And first, I want to thank you for making last week's podcast my most downloaded podcast ever. Episode 1 of Season 3 really took off. You guys downloaded like 345 times in 24 hours, and I believe that's just the Spotify numbers, which is absolutely amazing. So thank you so much for doing that and making this a worthwhile project. This week I have uh, one of the audio segments from a live stream presentation where I talked to Travis Shaw about the Beeline March during the American Revolution. Travis is a great 18th century historian. He's a great historian all around and a really great friend of myself and I was so happy to have him on while we were in the early throes of the pandemic. Uh We actually talked about that a little bit at the beginning, where I was doing a lot of live streams there, and some of you may remember that. Travis was on during that whole uh, massive ordeal of like four to five live streams a week that I was doing, and uh, it was great to have him on, though, and, and to be discussing an awesome 18th century topic like the Beeline March. So once again, I do want to thank you for checking out episode one of season three, if this is is your first time listening to one of my podcasts please go check out the other ones i have two seasons uh before this obviously uh full of all kinds of interviews and insights into the history field and i hope you'll take advantage of uh taking those in as well so without further ado ladies and gentlemen here's my great friend travis shaw talking about the beeline march during the american revolution What's up, everybody? Good evening. Welcome to this evening's live stream. Very happy to be back on for the second time today, uh, back in the office. And we're going to be talking tonight with Travis Shaw, the public programs coordinator for the Mosby Heritage Area Association. And we're going to be talking about the Beeline March and the making of an American myth. What's up, buddy? How are you doing?
1: I'm doing great, man. How are you?
0: I'm doing well. I'm, I'm getting in the groove of doing these live streams all the time.
1: Yeah. uh, Like I was just saying, you know, we've, uh, we've been learning on the go, but you were really ahead of the curve as far as this went.
0: I know I was made for a pandemic, I guess, huh? (laughs) uh,
1: You don't mind. I'm just going to take a second to share this over to the heritage area so that people watching there can, uh, can watch.
0: Yeah. And and thank you everyone for tuning in already. I know it's seven o'clock on the button and uh, we're going to be having people coming in and out for most of the evening uh i see mike froning is on he's all the way from maine he's usually the first one on so mike what's up buddy uh and we're gonna be sharing this out over on the mosby heritage area association page as well so you can check that out if you uh need to go over and like that page please do so as well we get some traffic going on both sides of the equation here so travis tell everyone uh, a little bit about yourself who hasn't been introduced to you yet Uh, there are a couple people that are newcomers who have never seen you on here before Yeah,
1: absolutely. Um, So uh, my name is Travis Shaw, as John said, I'm with the Mosby Heritage Area Association. Um, That's a five county heritage area in Northern Virginia uh, where we promote historical education and historical preservation work. Um, We go into schools, we talk to kids, we put on live programs throughout the year, um, everything from book talks to battlefield tours to um, a conference every fall. Uh, We also work a lot with local landowners uh, to get land under preservation easements. Um, It's a pretty remarkable landscape, very well-preserved landscape, and, you know, we really work to try and and keep it that way. We think there's, there's something special about being able to go where history happened and see it much as people did 100, 150, 200 years ago.
0: And you guys have some amazing, uh, th- this is kind of out of the blue, but you guys have some amazing roads down there, like roads that haven't been touched since the 19th century.
1: Yeah, that's that's a point of pride and and for some people, contention. Um, <laughs> yeah. Down in, especially in the southern part of Loudoun County and northern Fauquier County, we've got something like 300 miles of unpaved roads. And wow. as you said, a lot of them have not been touched since the Civil War. So, you know, as you walk down these roads, you're basically following in the literal footsteps of the army of the potomac the army of northern virginia
0: Mm -hmm. that's awesome and i i love that area down there and it's amazing so uh anyone who hasn't been there you need to check this you need to check that part of the world out i love that northern part of the virginia and down through that area it's great and i also know that your your love is in the 18th century (laughs) <laughs> yes
1: uh yeah although i i work for an organization that does a lot of 19th century history my my interest my love is definitely with the 18th century and specifically with the the time around the american revolution so thankfully that's what we're talking about tonight
0: yeah we're going all the way back to 1775 so this would be good because usually a lot of people are being inundated with civil war on my page lately because i've been working alongside the cwi so it'd be nice to uh have some 18th century stuff. So why, why this topic, Travis, why do you want to talk about this tonight?
1: Oh, man, I think this is an absolutely fascinating topic. Um, you know, the formation of these rifle companies is really the birth of the United States Army. Um, you know, the order that gives, you know, Congress authorizes the raising of these 10 rifle companies uh, happens on June 14th, 1775. And this is the first time Congress calls for troops Uh, from colonies outside of New England. And so it's the date that we mark the birth of the United States Army. Um, You know, if you look at the seal of the army or on any army flags or talk to anyone who's ever been in the army, that date, June 14th, is a huge one. Um, So it's fascinating from that aspect. Um, The actual events that transpire that summer uh, are, are really interesting too. In a lot of ways, I think it's one of the most remarkable stories from the American Revolution. And then, uh, as we kind of alluded to, it also gives rise to to a very pervasive kind of myth or legend within the United States uh, military and within American history. And and I definitely want to touch on that as well.
0: That'd be awesome. Uh, So what is what is the situation like in 1775 in in American colonies? Okay, so in June of
1: 1775, we've got, um, you know, kind of the the nucleus or the core of of what will become the Continental Army, uh, and it's besieging the British in Boston, you know, they're arranged in Cambridge and around Boston, it's at this point, mostly New Englanders, almost all New Englanders, um, you know, really drawing from the militias that had existed up there uh, before the start of hostilities. And as I said, on, on June 14th, Congress authorizes the raising of troops uh, from other colonies. And specifically, they're going to call for the raising of 10 companies of riflemen. Uh, six are supposed to come from Pennsylvania, two from Maryland, and two from Virginia. Um, and you know, to, to quote that, you know, each company as soon as completed shall march and join the army near Boston to be employed as light infantry under the command of the chief officer in that army. So again, directly under Washington's command. Mm-hmm. Um, as I said, you know, this marks the birth of the United States Army. Um, when they're raised, it really is the moment where the Continental Army truly becomes Continental. You know, Up until this point, it's, it's strictly a New England Army. And mm-hmm. so this is showing that the other colonies, these Southern colonies are willing to put in you know, the blood, sweat, and tears to this cause as well. Um, And as I said, it's it's also an important moment kind of psychologically because it's the birth of this kind of mythos of the American rifleman. And we'll see this pop up not only during the revolution, but, you know, on up to the modern day, the idea that this, you know, rugged individual, this guy who doesn't want to take orders, um, this warrior who with his own two hands can change the course of history. Um, really comes out of these volunteers that are raised in 1775, and and I'll get way more into that as we go on. But um, so I, I don't really want to dwell too much on the Pennsylvania companies because they they have kind of a different history. Um, Pennsylvania is supposed to raise six companies, they end up raising ten. Um, so they they basically form their own regiment and and have a very separate experience. Um, but these. Maryland and Virginia companies have a very, you know, they're, they're kind of linked throughout this experience. Um, so just to give you like a little bit of background on the four guys chosen to lead these Maryland and Virginia companies, um, all four are experienced military men. Um, most have had experience either in, in the French and Indian war or in Dunmore's war in 1774. Um, a lot of the men who will fill the ranks are also experienced in those kind of frontier conflicts. Um, the youngest officer that was chosen was Michael Cressop of Maryland. Um, he's 33 when, when his company is formed. Uh, he is the son of Thomas Cressop, famous, famous, famous Maryland frontiersman. This guy has fought in all the frontier conflicts um, that Maryland has been involved in in the kind of mid 18th century. Um, his son, Michael, follows in his footsteps. Um, you know, He's Indian trader, Indian fighter out in the Ohio country. Um, so again, this guy's got the pedigree. He's known as a fighter. Uh, the other Maryland company will be led by a guy named Thomas Price. He's 42, um, so older, um, kind of older than we think of when we think of officers in the 18th century. Um, Price is is kind of a political appointee. He's seen some experience during the French and Indian War, um, but in 1775, he's actually serving in the Maryland Committee of Observation. So you know, kind of this um, political part of the revolution. Uh, Over in Virginia though, we have probably the most famous of the four officers and that is gonna be Daniel Morgan. um, Guy that goes on to quite a bit of fame as the revolution goes on. Um, Born in New Jersey, moves to Virginia as a teenager, um, becomes famous as kind of this hard frontiersman, a brawler, um, Serves during the French and Indian War and during uh, Dunmore's War. And uh, by the time that this company is raised in 1775, he's 38. So again, these guys are kind of older than a lot of their contemporary officers would be at the time. Um, and then lastly, we have Hugh Stevenson, who will command the other Virginia company. Um, Stevenson, we don't know as much about him, unfortunately. Um, he, we know that he was a veteran of the French and Indian War, Dunmore's War. But uh, other than that, the record is, is pretty sketchy on him. Um, But yeah, we have these four guys, guys—Cressup, Price, Morgan and Stevenson who will command these companies uh, as they prepare to march north to to assist Washington. Um, The two Maryland companies will form in Frederick um, and they'll be drawn largely out of Frederick County. Now Frederick County, Maryland at the time is everything kind of west of Baltimore pretty much or everything kind of Northwest of, of Washington. Um, so some will come from what's modern Frederick County. Some will come as far away as, you know, the very western edge of Maryland out, out the frontier. Um, hmm. The two Virginia companies, Morgan's company will, will be raised in Winchester. Okay. And Hugh Stevenson's company will be raised in the village of Mecklenburg, which is now Shepherdstown on the Potomac. Um, of course, hmm. now in West Virginia, but at the time it was uh, Berkeley County, Virginia. Um, and all of those companies will kind of get together at the same time. Um, the Frederick companies, June 21st, and then the two Virginia companies, uh, they'll start to muster June 22nd. So it's only, you know, about a week after that order comes out of Congress that these men are already starting to assemble. Um, you know, one of the things we see in 1775, kind of like in, in many other wars is in the first few months of the conflict, people are raring to go, you know, they see this as an adventure, they see it as the, the patriotic thing to do. Um, you know the populace hasn't been kind of ground down by the attrition and by the you know the the depredations of war yet. You know, there's still this very much this rage military going on. Mm. <laughs> um, so these companies start to gather in, in late June. Uh, one of the things that holds them up is they have to wait for arms and other equipment. Um, so all you know, um, all the kind of small gunsmith shops in Central Maryland and Western Virginia are going to be turning out rifles for these guys. Um, one of the examples I particularly love is in in Shepherdstown. Mm. There's uh, the Sheets Brothers making rifles. Not not Sheets like the the gas station chain. Um, but yeah, yeah, if you go to Shepherdstown today and you stand in the middle of town, there's a Chinese restaurant, little brick. For a Chinese restaurant okay. near the college, that was the Sheets Rifle Shop. So, guns for Hugh Stevenson's company were made there. Where you can now go and get Chinese takeout. So, um, <laughs> I do love that. Wow. <laughs> um,
0: <laughs> now, were these guys? We had a question. It's one that I thought of too. Uh, did these guys receive a bounty for their for volunteering, or did they just volunteer and and go? For-
1: um, yes, they they are they are paid for volunteering. Absolutely. Yep. Um, I do not off the top of my head remember what what the payment is. but <laughs> Right. Right. Um, so,
0: and this is in direct response to Lexington and Concord. Basically, the Continental Congress issues this based on what they've heard about Lexington and Concord.
1: Yeah, so it's a few months after Lexington and Concord. You know, after, after Lexington and Concord, the British kind of get bottled up there in Boston, uh, and, and things pretty much hit a stalemate through May and early June. Now, of course, almost immediately after this order is given, we have the Battle of Bunker Hill, which, you know, kind of changes the situation a little bit, um, shows the British that the Americans are capable of, of not only standing and fighting, but inflicting horrendous casualties. Um, but even after Bunker Hill, you know, that does not break the siege of Boston. You have this kind of ragtag army surrounding the city, um, and then the British hold up within the city itself. Mm -hmm. Um, and, you know, with all the, the accompanying issues of being under siege, you know, they're running out of food, they're running out of firewood, you know, disease is starting to break out in the city um so it's it's not a tenable position for the british necessarily um but washington really doesn't have the troops the heavy artillery to to break the siege either so mm-hmm. okay. um, and it's hoped that maybe these riflemen might help tip the balance
0: mm-hmm. so how far do they have to travel they gotta go from winchester to boston then.
1: yes yeah, so this is what's <laughs> you know what i think is really the most remarkable thing about this march um <laughs> Is, you know, they, they call it the beeline march because, you know, by July, by about mid July, these companies are ready to go. And, you know, according to, to the legend, according to um, kind of the, the tradition, Morgan was supposed to let Stevenson know when they were going to march so that the companies could march to Boston together.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, he did not. Um, he leaves Winchester on July 14th. He, uh, Stevenson finds out the next day that they've already started to march um so morgan will leave july 14th stevenson leaves shepherdstown july 17th and then the two maryland companies will leave frederick on the 18th so all within a few days of one another um all told these companies are going to have to march about 600 miles to boston um, and that's 600 miles on 18th century roads. You know there are roads connecting these places, but and you know they're they're unpaved dirt roads. It's the middle of summer. I can't imagine how dusty it would be, how muddy it is when it rains. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the soldiers in Stevenson's company actually leaves an account of the march, which is really cool because you can track their progress. You know they leave from Shepherdstown, they cross the Potomac. They cross um, what would later, you know, 80-something years later be the Antietam Battlefield. You know, they march through Sharpsburg and up to Kittiesville area to Frederick, Hanover and York, Pennsylvania, um, all the way up, you know, eventually to Cambridge. Now, this is what is so remarkable about this. Each one of these companies are able to make that march in about 22, 23 days, about three weeks. Now, you know, we we, when we talk about the Civil War, we give a lot of credit to Jackson and his foot cavalry. You know, these guys are doing like 30 mile marches. Yeah. These guys are averaging that for like three weeks straight. It's not just a day or two or three of marching like that. This is, you know, they're averaging like 25 miles a day for three weeks straight in the middle of summer. Yeah. Yeah. you know, and this is where it gets the name the Beeline March, you know, Steven, you know, it's usually specifically applied to Stevenson, but I think it really applies to any of these four companies. These guys made a Beeline for Boston um, and, and were able to arrive in, you know, I think it's astounding that they are able to do that.
0: Oh, yeah. Um, and on 18th century roads. I mean, come on. That's
1: yeah. Cool. In um,
0: Bettinger rights, actually, in Stevenson's
1: company, they leave with I think it's 89 men right around there and they only lose two along the way wow um it's it's remarkable
0: yeah Yeah, because you hear about losing two in a day on you know in a a company in the civil war and all that and it's you know two guys fell out of line five miles down the road these guys are losing two on the whole march
1: yeah and i mean i really think it, it speaks to the enthusiasm that these guys had uh, there's a certain kind of esprit de corps that comes with them as well, um, which, again, will play into this myth that arises from the, the Beeline March. You know, many of these men come from the frontier or areas that had been the frontier within the past generation or so. Um, they certainly see themselves as a little different from, you know, the the settled farmers of eastern Pennsylvania or New York as they're passing through these communities, Um you know, as they come into these communities, um, there's a great account when they enter Frederick. Um, some of the guys paint themselves up like Indians and are like whooping and hollering as they come in. Um, they really, they really wanted to show off, um, and they they certainly do so. A lot of uh, times when they'd stop in these towns, they'd put on shooting demonstrations to show just how good they were at marksmanship. Mm-hmm. Um, so there, there's a certain cockiness to it that I really like. Um, and again, it plays into that, our our ideal of this, you know, American rifleman, you know, these rugged sons of the forest who, um, you know, again, they, they don't take crap from anyone. They don't follow orders. They're their own kind of individual, uh, individual. So mm-hmm. uh, I, I think that plays into a lot of it. You know, none of these men wanted to be considered cowards or wanted to be considered soft or weak.
0: So... Mm-hmm. As we know, with with the revolution, um, it's basically our own kind of first civil war in that regard, you know, and not everyone's for the the colonists and, you know, all this other stuff. Did they meet any kind of backlash along the uh, along the route from people who just didn't care didn't want to associate with with them or anything
1: um, Bedinger's account actually mentions running into to one loyalist mm-hmm. um, you know someone that kind of treats them rudely and you know they they don't really seem to, to take it into too much account um, for the most part you know the people the communities that they're they're marching through are, are fairly supportive mm-hmm. um, you know it's' Again, I think that kind of speaks to, to the way the revolution plays out. You know, again, a lot of, of what we identify as loyalist sentiment or resistance to, to the patriot cause, um, a lot of that is kind of war exhaustion. You know, these people, once the war drags on several years, Congress starts asking for more and more money, more and more supplies, more and more men from their communities. And I think that's going to turn a lot of people against them. Mm-hmm. Um, they're also tending to march through areas that you know aren't really known for a heavy loyalist presence. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, eastern Pennsylvania may have a lot of, you know, for instance, Quakers or, or German pacifists who who are neutral, but they're not necessarily out and out aggressively pro-British at this point. Um, you know, they're not going through the parts of like, you know, New Jersey or Western Pennsylvania or, you know, um, areas where they're, they're super strong loyalist commitment. Um, and also, you know, I think a lot of loyalists had the good sense to keep their heads down when they see hundreds of guys painted like Indians whooping through the town, you know? <laughs> yeah.
0: What did these guys look like? What was their material culture like?
1: Oh man. Great question. Um, So we have a lot of accounts of what they look like um, written by people who watch them march along the way. Um, You know, one quote says, you know, they are remarkably stout and hardy men, many of them exceeding six feet in height. They're dressed in white frocks or rifle shirts and round hats. And, you know, that's something that appears over and over again in these eyewitness descriptions. You know, they're not issued a uniform when they leave, but they are extremely uniform in their appearance. Um, Most of them, first of all, are wearing hunting shirts. Um, The hunting shirt is a a really fascinating, entirely American garment. Um, It appears kind of Western Virginia in the 1760s, um, spreads to like Maryland, Pennsylvania by the time the revolution starts. And, you know, I wish I'd grabbed one from upstairs, but... uh, you know, it's it's a, a linen shirt. It's split down the front. It's got a, a cape with fringe on it. You know, if we think of our stereotypical frontiersmen, you kind of have that in your mind. Mm-hmm. Um, it's you know, by the time 1775 rolls around, at least in Virginia, it's become very much a political statement. You know, wearing one of these shows that you're a supporter of America or of American independence. Um, and these guys are going to be wearing these hunting shirts. Um, a lot of them will be wearing things like, you know, Indian style wool leggings or moccasins. Um, again, as symbols of their, that they have come from the frontier. Um, again, yes, yeah, 600 miles and a pair of moccasins. Yeah. <laughs> <Crazy>. <laughs> uh, so even though they're not issued uniforms, they are going to all be dressed fairly similarly as they, they march north. Um, They're all going to be carrying rifles, which is another thing that really sets them apart from most soldiers in 1775. Um, Rifling is not a new technology in 1775. Um, It's been around for centuries. Um, Mm -hmm. It's brought to the Americas by by specifically German communities. So where you see rifle culture in 1775 is typically where you find the most Germans. So like where they're recruiting these rifle companies from, you know, like Pennsylvania, um, you know, Pennsylvania Dutch country. Lancaster is a huge rifle, you know, center of rifle making activity. Frederick County, Maryland, lots of rifle makers there. Down into Mecklenburg or Shepherdstown near Winchester. Um, now the rifle has a huge advantage over a smoothbore musket in terms of accuracy. You know, you're talking about, about twice the accurate distance as a musket. Uh, but it will have several downsides, and we can get into like how how much of a disadvantage this gives these guys later on. Um, you know, for one, firing a rifle is much slower to load and fire. Um, you've got to measure the powder, you've got to patch the ball with a cloth patch to make sure it grips the rifling. You've got to ram that down, which comes harder and harder as the rifle becomes fouled. Um, the other big disadvantage is rifles don't mount bayonets so these riflemen as we'll unfortunately find out a little later on are are pretty helpless when it comes to, to hand-to-hand combat mm-hmm. um so okay. hopefully that answers
0: some yeah. Of the questions. yeah that's awesome i i know that uh neil Hurst was on here earlier saying all oh, the, the 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 uh hunting shirt makes its appearance in new england yes
1: yeah absolutely um one of the things that, that you really you see a lot of is the descriptions of these guys are coming from New Englanders who have never seen a hunting shirt before. Oh, really? Like, this is like a weird shirt. It's got fringe. It looks kind of like a wagoner's smock, except it's split down the front. Um, and and it's amazing because within a few months or a few years, the hunting shirt really transcends this regional identity and becomes broadly used throughout America. You know, George Washington recommends it as a uniform for Continental troops. You know, it's cheap to make. It's easy to put together. Um, it will give the guys at least some semblance of a uniformed appearance. Um, and if you want to learn about hunting shirts, Neil Hurst is absolutely the guy to go to. Um, his thesis on hunting shirts is, is really a, a great material culture study. I can't think of any better.
0: Are they easier for sizing as well, or because they seem like they they fit a little looser than some other garments do?
1: Yeah, I mean, they're when when the Continental Army starts wearing these things, they really start you know churning them out very quickly um you know they're they i don't think they're they're not as fitted as a a uniform coat would be at all um you know it's kind of a smart one of the things washington says is you can in the cold weather you can layer it over things um so they're pretty loose fitting garments
0: yeah when these guys make this trek how are they accepted by the troops when they get there or the, the the militias when they get there who are these uh, englanders who see these guys for the first time and so this
1: is a really really fun story so um you know there's a, a great quote from james warren who writes to john adams in in august on august 9th he says you know four captain he's talking about the british four captains and a subaltern were killed at the beginning of last week chiefly by the riflemen and i'm persuaded they will do great execution um, he says, there's one company here last week on Sunday, a fine company came in from Virginia yesterday morning, uh, three more companies came, he never saw a finer fellow. So, you know, this is, again, one of those mm-hmm. moments where the Continental Army really starts to, to transcend just being a New England army. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're, they're really initially greeted, um, you know, the, the New Englanders are ecstatic to see these guys. Um, and the fact that they've come so far to support them is, is you know, something that, that these guys are, are really impressed by. And, you know, of course they're impressed by their marksmanship. Um, another eyewitness says these men are remarkable for the accuracy of their aim, striking a mark with great certainty at 200 yards. <laughs> so again, we're talking, you know, maybe double the distance of, of a smooth musket. Um, Washington actually orders a demonstration of their skills at one point. Um, where, you know, they're firing at targets from 200, 250 yards away. Um, one of the things that I really, really like is uh, a Pennsylvania paper publishes this letter to a British newspaper in London. You know, it says, uh, you know, these, this province has raised a thousand riflemen who will put a ball on a man's head at 150 or 200 yards. We therefore advise your officers who are coming to America to settle their affairs in England before they depart, you know, so it's, it's a propaganda, you know, triumph for, for the Americans, at least at first. And uh, what we'll see over the next few weeks, once they arrive is, you know, they really, um, they, they, they make a name for themselves harassing the British, like they're not necessarily killing a lot of British soldiers, but you know, any British soldier that's putting his head up is within rifle range is gonna have like balls flying at him. Um, You know, they're they're picking off isolated sentries, they're, you know, some of the British officers start taking some of their, you know, rank insignia off because they're afraid of being hit. Um, But, but there's always a but. Um, On the other hand, you know, things aren't aren't always so rosy as time goes on. Um, these riflemen are initially excused from fatigue duty. So you have all these New Englanders who are, are busting their butts, digging trenches and building fortifications while these Southerners are just kind of laying around taking pot shots at the British. Yeah. Um, you know, we tend to think of regional or like sectional animosity as a 19th century thing, but it absolutely exists in the 18th century. You know, many of these men have never been outside of their home state. They've never met a Southerner before. They, you know, these Southerners have never met a New Englander before. So you will see discipline kind of go to hell um, very quickly as the the fall drags on. Um, a lot of fighting, a lot of drunkenness. Um, some of the riflemen desert because, you know, they didn't sign up for this. They wanted to fight the British, not sit around in, in trenches for, for weeks on end. Yeah. Um, You know, uh, there's a a quote by Artemis Ward, you know, this New England general who's up there. He says, they don't boast so much of the riflemen as heretofore. General Washington has said he wished they'd never come and General Lee has damned them and wished them all in Boston. (laughs) But again, um, as we'll get to, this kind of plays into the myth. You know, Americans love a rebel. You know, Americans love... Uh, a a badass who doesn't listen to anyone else who doesn't follow orders Mm -hmm. and that's really what they're getting here uh in in the late summer and the early fall of 1775 you know these riflemen have have a reputation for being kind of wild
0: so initially they have like uh they're doing like almost psychological warfare on the enemy Yes, because they're picking them off at long distances and they're like hey you better keep your head down because those riflemen are out there and i plays into your psyche you know Absolutely. and all of a sudden they're getting in the heads of their comrades now because they're just loafing around because they have orders that you know they got permission not to do anything as far as fatigue duty is concerned it's kind of like wow this boy really flips the script on them for a little bit
1: yeah um yeah it's it's actually i'm glad you mentioned that because um going back to the hunting shirt thing one of the things washington says when he recommends that. They use them as uniforms He he's like if all of the men are wearing hunting shirts the british are going to assume that we're all marksmen
0: right we're, assume
1: we're all hardcore riflemen and yeah. you know yeah. that's going to play into the psyche now whether that was true or not i i couldn't really say but uh yeah it, it is, is it is kind of funny
0: that's amazing and, and it is true it is like the uh it's the quintessential american story where it's like The rough guy from you know backwoods america coming out to you know take it's a sergeant york story (laughs) i I was gonna bring him up later because he is absolutely a direct
1: descendant you know of these these riflemen of 1775 Mm -hmm. um you know we see it with sergeant york we see it um you know even during the civil war with the sharpshooter companies that are raised and kind of this reputation that i think kind of more inflated than their actual impact on the battlefield (laughs) Mm -hmm. um you know not to denigrate sergeant york because obviously i mean he was absolutely a remarkable remarkable guy um we see it today i mean look at you know the movie american sniper i mean that's a clear clear um line going back to to 1775 right um
0: and a lot of people who do stolen valor say they're a sniper when you think about it i mean i've had friends who are vets who have pulled people out and said that stolen valor guy whatever and they're like i knew it because of the way he had his patches but they're always like sniper or special forces or something like that it goes back to this mythology
1: yeah no one really wants to fake that they were like you yeah. know <laughs> a cleric. like logistics or something like that, yeah. driving a truck um, yeah
0: right it's a quintessential it's- american thing everyone wants to be a sniper
1: right because you know they're operating alone or in a small team you know they're out there behind enemy lines or on the very you know tip of the spear kind of thing nobody wants to be the average soldier um i mean you play a lot of video games i know that like you know when you're playing a game like battlefield or something everybody wants to be the sniper you know
0: yeah and i'm (laughs) the guy who just wants to throw the most lead down range as possible (laughs) you know (laughs) give me the musket i'll be fine um but yeah, how does how does this impact the units going forward in the war? How does this change? Because all they're already they're already getting psychologically into the heads of the British. The British are changing their uniforms now, which is a really cool thing in warfare that we don't often talk about. Is how how men adapt their uniform to their situation. I think that's a really cool thing that we don't touch on a lot, uh, material culture wise, outside of the reenacting hobby. We don't touch on it a lot, you know, and. Uh, but it's so cool to see how this transitions into the future.
1: Yes. Yeah, so in the fall of 1775, these four companies are going to undergo really fundamental change. Um, they're almost unrecognizable by the time the year is over. Um, first of all, Daniel Morgan's company is taken out of the lines of Boston and sent to, uh, to Maine. Hmm. Uh, they're going to be part of the, the failed assault on Quebec on uh, New Year's Eve of 1775. Cressup um, will die in October he's actually ill when, during the march um, he makes it to Boston um, and then he's actually trying to return home to Maryland and he dies in New York City um, Price ends up getting promoted in January so um, he'll, he'll become an officer in the 2nd Maryland regiment uh, so the only original captain left by January of 76 is, is Hugh Stevenson mm-hmm. and He's going to be there kind of in in general command of these companies Uh, when the siege of Boston ends in March, the British evacuate Boston, sail to uh, to Halifax. Um, What's left of the rifle companies will march south with the army to New York. And they'll be in New York in June, just as the city is expecting an attack by the British when their enlistments expire. You know, these guys enlisted for a year that runs out just as as New York is expecting an attack by the British. Um, many of the men will choose to reenlist um, again, kind of a testament to to their patriotism or, or to, you know, the cause that they believe in. Um, and what happens is they take the survivors of these these companies stick them in with a few recently raised companies from Maryland, Virginia, and form what is known as the Maryland and Virginia Rifle Regiment, and Stevenson will command that. Um, and they'll, they'll take part in all the battles around New York that happened during the summer and fall of 1776. Um, one of the coolest quotes of the Revolutionary War, I think, um, when the British fleet arrives off of New York, one of these riflemen, a Marylander named Daniel McCurtain, actually writes I thought all of London was afloat because you can imagine just, you know, the largest fleet anyone has ever seen in the New World, basically, mm-hmm. descending on New York, and these guys just, you know, it's it's the Empire Strikes Back. It's right it's my face
0: <laughs> exactly.
1: Yeah, like,
0: literally. yeah, literally. Um, The Empire Striking Back, (laughs) you know,
1: Um, but there is kind of a a sad epilogue to to this regiment. Um, They will take part in the defense of Fort Washington on November 16th of 1776. Um, It's one of the last continental strongholds on Manhattan, you know, kind of last toehold on New York. And they will be in the trenches defending this fort um, against a British and Hessian assault. And what they find you know, I alluded earlier to some of the drawbacks of the rifles, you know, this slow rate of fire. Mm -hmm. um, The inability to really participate in close combat that is going to be, you know, lead to their their destruction, essentially. Um, You know, misfires start happening, rifles get fouled very quickly, Um, some of the men would resort to rocks in hand to hand combat. Um, you know, a German officer writes, "These terrible men deserve more pity than fear. They want nearly 15 minutes to load their pieces, and during that time, they feel our balls and our bayonets." Mm-hmm. Um, and this this is a really, you know, shows a, a fundamental shift. You know, in less than a year, the British have gone to being kind of suspect or fearful of these guys. To figuring out how to stop them, um, you know, if their rate of fire is so slow, if they can't fight in close combat, you know, the British, despite what we we think we know about the Revolution, are very tactically aggressive, and very adaptable. Um, they find the best way to overcome riflemen is to take them in close combat. You know, you can cover a hundred yards pretty quick if you're running, mm-hmm. um, and while these guys are are trying to load their pieces. Uh, they will get overrun. Um, most of the survivors of that battle of Fort Washington, you know, they're captured. Most will, will die in British prison ships um, over the next few years. So it's, you know, as I said, a, a pretty sad epilogue, um, but it does lead to some interesting tactical developments. You know, as the war goes on, both the Americans and the British really perfect how to use riflemen and how to incorporate them into their armies um, in, in effective ways.
0: Were they ever seen as um, negative as far as when when they targeted officers or anything like that? Was that a because that seems to be something that going forward seems to be a negative thing for years, and I didn't know if that's a connotation that's given to them for it or is it kind of like uh you're, you're just picking off the right person <laughs> i
1: mean certainly in a lot of writing after the fact you know we have this idea of 18th century warfare as being like super gentlemanly and like you're not supposed to target officers and things like that um but you know riflemen on both sides both in the british and the american armies are going to be doing it throughout the war um that really becomes one of their their Uses on the battlefield, you know, they they might not be able to stand in line of battle the way that musket armed troops would be able to. You know, they can't throw the the lead down range that a musket armed you know regiment can. But they are going to find a niche, you know, targeting officers, um, targeting artillerymen, you know, kind of high profile, high value targets at long distances. Um, one thing that the British will will do is, you know, the British, they have their own riflemen. Um, they'll start issuing rifles to men in light infantry companies. So you have a mixture of rifle and musket-armed troops. Hmm. Um, you know, they also have German riflemen, the, the Jaegers, you know, recruited from games keepers and hunters in, in Central Europe. Um, and the Americans will do the same thing. You know, one of the high points i guess you could say of daniel morgan's career and, and of the use of riflemen is it comes at the battle of saratoga when morgan's riflemen will wreak such havoc on british officers at saratoga one of the reasons they're able to do that so effectively is they're backed up by henry dearborn's light infantry so they have about 300 light infantry men with them with muskets with bayonets who can you know put lots of fire down range and who can also back them up with bayonets as the british advance as they get too close so um by the end of the war you see both sides really kind of using what we now kind of refer to as combined arms i guess you could say you know um high, high volume of fire suppression fire and then very accurate fire at high value targets
0: did these men have any kind of uh sharpened weapons for hand-to-hand combat or anything like that because they can't have a bayonet and you you have a line of british coming at you with bayonets kind of like or did they just use weapons cl- or as like clubs or so you know, like, uh, muskets or uh, rifles when
1: they set out for boston a lot of them will be carrying like scalping knives and tomahawks and stuff mm-hmm. um you know uh, hunting swords kind of short swords um that kind of stuff i i don't I would imagine it's probably pretty dubious in terms of hand-to-hand combat if you're facing men with bayonets. Mm. Um, you know, they certainly—I guess—it's part of again that psychological idea that these guys are kind of half-feral, coming from the the frontier. They're going to scalp you and tomahawk you like a Native American would. Right. Um, but I'm not sure how how effective that would be. At one point in the war, there's actually plans drawn up to issue folding pikes. To riflemen. Wow. Um, you know, in the event that like cavalry charge at them, they'd be able to fight them off with a small pike. Um, that doesn't really happen. Um, you know, I think they find that the most effective way to, to utilize these guys is to use them in combined formations. Um, you now the British will develop, you know, famously the Ferguson rifle, which doesn't see a lot of use during the revolution. It's only used, you know, very limited handfuls. Mm -hmm. Um, but this is a breech loading rifle and it's actually like a a screw you unscrew the trigger guard load from the top Um, it has a bayonet Um, so the british are already kind of thinking ahead with this Um, you know they that ferguson rifle is definitely way ahead of its time is way too complicated i think for widespread battlefield use in the 18th century Uh, but some of the the pattern 76 rifle that they develop and so forth leads to the baker rifle which of course will will dominate the battlefield during the napoleonic wars and anyone who's ever watched any of the sharp movies knows all about that you know um
0: you must have a sixth sense buddy because chris Ware just came on and asked if you could talk about the ferguson rifle and you, oh, immediately, you, you immediately went into it <laughs>
1: yeah the rifle is is so cool um again like i said tremendous rate of fire it really is an effective weapon the problem is um you know first of all it was complicated to manufacture mm-hmm. and secondly um with the mechanism it's very hard to maintain in the field you know it wasn't really ideal for for hard campaigning so mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. and this is in an era where there's no mass-produced parts so you're gonna have to you know <laughs> work with it as best as you can, right? Yeah,
1: I mean, we're at the very beginning of the kind of industrial revolution. So parts parts are still, they're being made according to patterns. They're being made according to spe- specifications, but they're still largely being made by hand or being like stamped out by water-powered machinery and things like that. So it's it's very difficult. Um, one of the reasons probably why the rifle did not see more widespread use other than you know the drawbacks in terms of, Of accurate or of uh, rate of fire is that you know it's more complicated to to manufacture.
0: Uh Mm -hmm. What uh, as as they're moving forward and they they get you know basically captured and uh, slaughtered in in New York. uh, Those those who come out of it you know uh, uh, later on or whenever it may be, what is their kind of like a legacy of of this whole ordeal?
1: Well, um, you know, I think the Rifleman, in general, becomes very much an American icon. Um, You know, we, going into the 19th century and the 20th century, we like to think we won the American Revolution by hiding behind rocks and trees, because, you know, we were smarter than the British who would stand there in their bright red uniforms like idiots. Yeah, and just... which you know is is very far from the truth you know the continental army wins the war because it learns to fight like an effective european army mm-hmm. um, and you know as i said the the rifleman is a romantic legend um, you know again we don't like to think about the average soldier who stood there in line with hundreds or thousands of other average soldiers we like to think of the one badass who can take out the enemy from 300 yards away mm-hmm. um, Because it's, I think it's a much more powerful idea in some ways that one single person can have such an effect on history. Mm -hmm. You know, the guy that takes out Frazier at Saratoga, you know, I know there's some competing claims as to who it is, but, or probably we'll never actually know who it was, but, you know, these people become folk heroes. Um, You know, the idea of, again, look at the media or popular culture that surrounds the 18th century I mean think about a movie like The Patriot mm-hmm. you know aim small miss small but he was like the most quoted line in that movie and it's you know this guy is totally built on this archetype of the American rifleman um and you go to like last of the Mohicans you know right. Hawkeye is clearly clearly based on this kind of legendary frontiersman mm-hmm. um Daniel Boone Davy Crockett you know Anyone who's watched that Disney movie from the 60s knows, you know, he's the King of the Wild Frontier. Yeah. Um, but that's a direct lineage back to these guys. Um, if you look at state seals, um, which is kind of a weird thing, but like I noted, yeah, you know, like the Kentucky state seal is a guy in a hunting shirt. West Virginia, guy in a hunting shirt. WVU's mascot, the Mountaineer, he's a guy in a hunting shirt with a sure. rifle. Yeah. Um, This is a powerful image. Um, You know, we like to think of ourselves as, you know, ordinary people capable of extraordinary things. And that one person could change the course of a battle or of a war. It's a very powerful, powerful image.
0: Mm. So with people wanting to learn more about it, what are some some books you like? What are some memoirs you like? What are some things like that that you really take an interest in?
1: Uh, I would absolutely uh, recommend. There's a biography of Daniel Morgan that came out. Um, actually, I've got it on my shelf right now. Hold on. Okay, go ahead.
0: <laughs> <laughs> we, have, we usually have Pete Carmichael on here pulling books. So, yeah, yeah, we're, are, we're used yeah. to it.
1: Um, so, Daniel Morgan by uh, Albert Zambone. Okay. I was going to say Zamboni, like the. Name yeah. of it. Um, really good recent biography of Morgan. It talks a lot about his experiences during the war, including the Beeline March. Mm. Excuse me. Um, and a lot of his, his later impact on the war. As I said, out of those four officers, he's really the only one that goes on to any sort of fame. You know, he goes on to become one of Washington's most trusted and most capable subordinates during the war. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a really good one. Um, the Memoir that I mentioned, uh, Henry Bedinger, that was published in a history of Shepherdstown back in the like 1920s, early 20th century. Um, And I can, I'll like post that to your page because I can't think of the title right now, but it does have his account and then it also um, has some accounts later on from the 19th century of people talking about the veterans of this march and so forth. Um, You know, these guys, these guys, certainly the ones who survived, became legends in their communities. Uh, and, and really, as I said, national legends. You know, people, when, when we think of Revolutionary War soldiers, I, I think a lot of people, their mind immediately goes to these kind of these rough frontiersmen, these individuals.
0: <laughs> yeah. And, and, you know, it's usually the hunting shirt still is what people think of with, with the rebellion is you know it's it's the it's the quintessential continental soldier is wearing one of those that's what people just automatically go to yeah yeah so it's legacy must still stick with us pretty hard <laughs> we're still yeah,
1: ab- absolutely um absolutely
0: yeah that's great do you have any last things you want to talk about or uh uh one last myth you need to dispel about these guys or
1: uh if anyone out there the any or Anything they want me to expand on, I'm happy to, to do that.
0: Well, yeah, people are glad that you pulled out Zamboni. Okay. Uh, <laughs> yeah.
1: uh, it's a it's a great read, really good book.
0: So. Uh here's a here's a good one. Uh, how do these ten companies overall of riflemen uh how do they influence military tactics? Well we kind of went over that, but you know, they sounds like they did a whole hell of a lot for tactics going forward at least i'm thinking of like war of 1812 and and stuff like that so
1: one of the big lessons that they learn with the riflemen is you can't just have like a whole army of riflemen i mean it sounds very attractive to the modern mind these guys are so accurate and capable of you know hitting such a distance Mm -hmm. um but as the war goes on um, washington and other generals will actually start um ordering that rifle companies be reissued muskets, they almost hit a critical mass of riflemen, where, you know, as I said, they're just not able to make it stand on a battlefield against, you know, a contemporary enemy, you know, volume of fire and and the ability to bring a large amount of firepower to bear at any one point uh, is really the name of the game in, in linear warfare. And so what both sides will find um, as the war goes on and and as I alluded to earlier, is that riflemen are great in small numbers. You know, they're a force multiplier. They can augment a conventional army's ability to operate. You know, they will certainly find a lot of use as scouts, Mm -hmm. um, you know, ahead of the main army, on the flanks of the main army. Um, You know, the Revolutionary War is not a big cavalry war. So they will almost replace cavalry in a lot of ways. Um, you know, they will be operating um, independently, kind of on the flanks and in the fore, um, scouting, screening against the enemy, um, skirmishing with the enemy. Uh, but when it comes to the actual heavy fighting of the war, you know, they they kind of occupy a secondary role. Mm. Um, so yeah, very useful. I'm not trying to tear down the riflemen. Um, <laughs> They certainly had their place on the 18th century battlefield. It's something that, as I said, you know, the British and the Americans really figure out as the war goes on, but um, they're not, they're not necessarily capable of standing on their own, I guess is what I'm trying to say.
0: Uh, would you say, as, as we close up here in a few minutes, would you say that uh, we talk about the American, the, the colonists, uh, colonial forces kind of adapting to warfare you know they're getting more linear and they're learning european style warfare and stuff like that would you say the british are doing the same thing as far as the american style of warfare they're kind of evolving as well there's a there's a distinct oh, american yeah. style of warfare and it's kind of like do they Glad does so, evolve <laughs> and meet in the middle yeah.
1: so the british were no strangers to that style of warfare you know of course they had fought in north america just you know 20 years earlier uh, in the French and Indian War, many of the British officers who were commanding troops in America had seen service in that war. Mm -hmm. Um, There's also a lot of kind of military theory coming out of Eastern Europe at the time, you know, the Balkans and and the Austrian Empire and stuff, where they're using these Jaegers and other light troops, riflemen. Um, And that's really kind of swirling around in the general uh, military science of the day. and so, what the British will do um, during, the revol- during the early years of the revolution is, you know, as I said, they get very aggressive because they they realize that the Americans don't tend to, you know, once combat becomes very close range, the Americans will flee. Mm. So again, they're moving very very quickly. They're moving very, very aggressively. They're using their best troops, you know, their light infantry, their grenadiers as you know, basically a fist to bash through the Americans. The Americans scatter and run. Um, it's not, you know, and uh, the British are very quick in America to adapt uh, open order. So instead of standing shoulder to shoulder, they're standing with gaps between the men. Um, they go from a free rank uh, lines down to two ranks, just more flexible. Um, you know, they're not necessarily firing big, massive volleys. They're firing as individuals at, at picking their targets. They're working on their marksmanship. Um, they absolutely adapt um, using the lessons that they learned in the French and Indian War, using what they're learning from continental Europe. Um, they adapt to this kind of warfare very quickly. Um, the Americans figure out the best way to stop that is by concentrating their firepower. You know, by by having solid lines of men who can lay down a lot of lead very quickly. Um, one of my favorite books on the topic, since you you asked for book recommendations, there is a book um, called "With Zeal and Bayonets Only" by Matthew Spring. That book really dispels a lot of the myths of the British army during the revolution, um, you know, taking eyewitness accounts, taking what's actually going on written by participants and showing that, you know, they weren't just these mindless automatons marching in, in lines to be slaughtered by the Americans, but are really, really quick and very keen to adapt uh, and, and fighting in a very different way than I think we're, we picture in our minds.
0: It's such an interesting time period. And, and I've often said, you know, I've heard that and I've read that about the British, you know, kind of molding a new fighting style to meet the threat, you know, and to, and to go with it. And I've always said to people, I'm like, just because they wore red doesn't mean they were on Star Trek. You know, they're not just going to stand there and take it. be like <laughs> the guys that die first, you know, yeah, I
1: mean, they, they were a, a professional army with a, a professional officer class who, who, knew how to adapt on the battlefield um Mm -hmm. i mean that's that's true of the americans um it's equally true of the british
0: yeah Yeah. and i I love listening to them how they adapted their uniforms because that's just my jam if it's material culture i'm there and some of the things they do is amazing but yeah
1: the british are again very quickly to adapt um you know they grenadiers will get rid of those tall bearskin caps you know the light infantry go the shortcut like you know, sh- very very short cut coats, round hats, um, long gaitered trousers as opposed to knee breeches, just because it's so much more practical when you're out in the American wilderness um, fighting. Mm-hmm. And and you see that time and again.
0: Yeah, adapting.
1: Uh, Got to check out Wizziel and Bayonets only. Great, great book, real eye opener as far as a British perspective on the war. Yeah,
0: we we'll have to put a link to that one too in the in the yeah. comments section here. But Travis, I really appreciate your time, brother. I, I appreciate the getting us back into 18th century now. Because uh,
1: hey, any any time, man, this was a pleasure.
0: Um, yeah, man, it's been great. Uh, we we have some uh, a lot of great people in the comment section. That I want to get to not, not a lot of questions, tonight, but a lot of great comments. I think uh, we'll, we'll go over the next couple of days. We'll catch up with you all on that front. But again, Travis, thanks for letting us know about the Beeline March and uh, what was going on in 1775 and and the, the epic and myth of the Rifleman in American <laughs> history.
1: Glad to be here. Thank you so much, John.
0: Yeah, buddy. Hey, everybody take care. Hope you have a wonderful night. Uh, stay tuned for more live streams later this week from both of us. I think you guys have one tomorrow
1: yeah. night. Um, tomorrow night we are doing our, our weekly Historians on Tap over at Mosby Heritage Area. Um, and that is uh, this week's theme is actually on song and dance. So local influences on music. We're gonna have some musicians with us playing some some great tunes, um, talking about the impact of Virginians on on music. So it'll be a really cool one. So I hope you tune in.
0: Awesome, great job. All right, hey, thanks everybody again for tuning in. Hope you have a wonderful night, Travis. Thanks so much, brother.
1: Thank you. Take care, bud.